This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bibles this morning, turn to the book of Philippians chapter number one, if you would, Philippians chapter number one, we're continuing our series entitled Affliction. Uh, We're taking a look at suffering and the sovereignty of God. It's interesting as you study the Bible that you find that the Bible speaks more of suffering than it does uh, good times. Uh, I don't think we need to know how to endure good times, that's pretty easy to do. Uh, But many times we need to learn how to endure suffering and how to suffer well, and we'll take a look at that uh, today from the book of Philippians. Uh, This is message number eight in our series. If you've missed any of the messages so far, uh, you can always get caught up on our website at huikala.org or subscribe to our podcast uh, wherever you get podcasts at or download our smartphone app to your phone or your tablet. And so uh, we're going to have a brief review uh, at the beginning of the message here today, and then we're going to dive right into our text this morning. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to start in uh, verse number 1, just to give us a little bit of context here. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi uh, here, and um, he's writing from a very unique place. He's writing from prison. And so this is what we would sometimes refer to as one of Paul's prison epistles. It's a letter that he wrote uh, while uh, sitting in prison. And so we uh, find ourselves Philippians chapter 1, verse number 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. The word bishop can be used interchangeably with the word that we would use, pastor. Uh, to the pastors and deacons at Philippi, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in pr- every prayer of mine for all of you, making requests with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, he which had begun a good work and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Verse number six is a great promise of uh, God's faithfulness, uh, God's uh, everlasting security that we have in eternal security in our salvation, that the work that God has started in you, he's gonna keep after it until the day you get to see Jesus. Verse number seven, even as is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have in you my heart and as much as both in my bonds in the defense of my confirmation of the gospel. You're all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you and all the bowels of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and in more knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things which are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. Uh, verse nine, verses nine and 10 really are the heart of a pastor. It's my heart for you, that you would grow to know more about the Bible that you would be a discerning Christian, that when you hear something that doesn't jive with Scripture, you'd say, "Ah, I don't know about that, that you'd allow God's Word to rule every single situation in your life. He said, I want you to approve things that are excellent. Verse number 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ Jesus, unto the glory and the praise of God. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in other places. Verse 14 is where we're going to focus on this morning. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident in my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. As we take a quick review of our survey of what the Bible says about suffering in our series so far, we see, first of all, that it happens to the righteous and the unrighteous. Many times we can get frustrated with difficult times because we think that uh, I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm trying to follow after God, but bad things continue to happen to me. Know this, uh, the Bible says that that's gonna be the case, that many times uh, we will be doing the right thing, but we'll still in, in face difficulty. But also difficult times come to the unrighteous as well. And that God, uh, sometimes in the life of a Christian, will send chastisement, difficult times to bring you back to him uh, when you're being disobedient. Uh, God sends punishment into the life of an unbeliever as judgment for their sin. We also saw that God is sovereign over our suffering. Uh, everything that takes place is, happens within God's perfect plan, within God's perfect will, within God's power, and within God's authority. And God has a plan or a purpose in our suffering. None of our suffering takes place for no reason. Uh, none of our suffering comes about uh, just because we, God didn't have anything else to do. It was in difficulty into our life. No, it was sent to us as part of God's perfect plan and to fulfill his purpose. Next, we saw that God has ordained our suffering. That means God's already planned it out in advance. And this can be a difficult task to grasp or a difficult concept to grasp as a Christian sometimes that God planned for you to suffer. God planned for difficulty to come your way. But again, when we take uh, a look at the totality of Scripture, we see that God is always working things together for our good, and suffering is part of God's good plan for us. Last week, we unpacked uh, Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good uh, to them who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. And we find great hope in these truths when, in regards to suffering. Any other world religion leaves suffering up to uh, maybe a problem that you have or something that you've done wrong or maybe a disinterested uh, person that is in charge of everything but doesn't really care about your life. Christianity tells you that the loving father that you have in God is behind the scenes orchestrating all of these details in your life to make you better. There's great comfort found in that. As we look at this passage again, uh, we see this morning that Paul is writing from prison. Now, he wasn't chained up in a dungeon like we would think of in a prison cell, uh, but he was under what's referred to as house arrest. He had a, a Roman guard that would have stayed with him at all times, wouldn't be allowed to leave uh, the place that they were in, that small room that they were in, uh, and was under house arrest. He, this meant that he was able to have visitors from time to time, and uh, people come and visit him and, and stay with him uh, for a period of time, and he would spend time, no doubt, talking about the Lord and talking about the Bible and, and talking about Jesus uh, with these people. And as we look at this, we need to understand when it comes to the Christian life, some, some very pertinent details we need to understand. First and foremost is this, that the Christian life is all about God's glory. Everything that we do in life is about the glory of God. And so the way that I live my life should be to the glory of God. The way that I parent my children should be to the glory of God. My marriage should give glory to God. The way that I work and any work that I've given to should be to the glory of God. If I have the opportunity to serve anyone, I should serve them to the glory of God. I want to point everything back to how great our God is and my life exists, your life exists to bring glory and honor to God in everything that we do. The Bible says whatever you do, whether you're eating or drinking, you should do it in a way that would give God honor and glory. And that's what our life is about. So we have to say then that our suffering is also about the glory of God. 
Secondly, the Christian life is not only about the glory of God, but the Christian life is about serving others. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister to others. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve other people. Jesus gave us a great example at the Last Supper when they gathered together for a meal and nobody wanted to wash feet because that was the job of a servant. Jesus girded himself with a towel and grabbed a basin and began to wash the apostles' feet as a picture of humility and leadership and service to other people. And it's the greatest example we have in what's now become a buzzword in our society, servant leadership. It was perfectly personified by the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like to, to be about other people. Jesus wasn't greatly concerned about his life and what he could get from it. He was looking for a way to serve other people and a way to bless other people through his life. And so we can take a page out of Jesus' playbook and say that the life isn't really about us or what we can get from it, but for how we can give glory to God first and foremost, and secondly, how we can serve other people. But next, the Christian life is also about discipleship. We talk a lot about it, discipleship here at Who We Call a Baptist Church because uh, it's, it's important. It's the mission of the church. <clears throat> Before Jesus went back to heaven, he gave us one final uh, mission. That is the mission that drives the church today, to go into all the world and teach them the Bible and to baptize them as committed followers of Jesus Christ, to teach them the Bible and then continue to pass that information on from here on out. Jesus says, you should teach them to observe everything that I've commanded. Uh, that's the mission of the church. Uh, our church doesn't get to set its own mission. We don't get to set our own agenda. Jesus has already done that for his church. Go, win, baptize, teach. That's a summary of the Great Commission right there. That's why we do what we do. We uh, go out into our community every single day, collectively as a church, every single Saturday, invite people to church, tell people about Jesus, uh, and show people the love of Christ through the way that we live our lives. We do that every single day, uh, every single week. Next, we try to win people to Jesus Christ. We share our faith with other people, giving them the opportunity to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is not something that takes place from the pulpit only on Sunday. It's something that should be taking place every single place that we go the opportunity to share people, share Jesus Christ with people. Inside your bulletin every week, you have an invitation that's given to you. That's not given to you so that you'll know when our service times are. You showed up here, you already know that. This is for you to give to someone else, just one a week. If everybody gave out one a week, man, how much more could the gospel go forward in our city? Uh, on the, the racks on the way out, on the, by the, every exit door, there's a rack of invitations there. You can grab a handful, get those out this week. This is just going and trying to win people to Jesus Christ. You might not have the opportunity to sit down with somebody and explain the gospel to them, but there's enough gospel on the back of our invitations to, for someone to come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's one of the ways that we propagate the Great Commission. Go, win, and then we see people baptized. When people accept Christ as Savior, we baptize them, showing that they have committed their life to Jesus Christ. Uh, last Sunday, we had a uh, baptism, uh, and it was an excellent time together. We had three folks that were baptized. Uh, two of them accepted Christ here at Huikala. And while we were out there, there was a lot of people out there. We had a, uh, the first time we ever took a, a church group photo on the beach. It was awesome. We did that. Uh, and so we had three people get baptized. And there's a lot of people around that had just gone out for a day at the beach or a cookout at the beach or something like that that stopped to watch what we were doing. Why? Because they were seeing something take place that was what Jesus commanded. And several opportunities we've had to invite people to church or explain to people what baptism or salvation is. Had the opportunity, uh, the last time we had a baptism, to share the gospel with a lady who's uh, visiting from Australia. And she said, what is this about? Is this a Christian thing? I said, it is. And she said, is this how people go to heaven? I said, oh, no, 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 no. Let me explain to you how people go to heaven. 
I was able to talk to her about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of mankind and how this baptism was simply a symbol, a picture of a decision they had already made to follow Jesus. And these people weren't going to heaven because they got baptized. They were going to heaven because Jesus paid for their sin and they accepted that payment. And then we continue to teach people the Bible. Go, win, baptize, teach. That's the Great Commission in a nutshell. It's repeated in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's also repeated in Acts chapter one, verse number eight. Five times Jesus repeats the Great Commission. It is the mission of our church. It's what we do. It's why we exist. Therefore, when it comes to the Christian life, I grew up in a church where uh, basically you wanted to get saved so you didn't go to hell. That's a good thing for sure. But after that, there wasn't really a, a need that was presented to follow Christ. Hey, you're going to heaven. Uh, just hang out here till Jesus comes. We'll get together every week. We'll sing a few songs. Uh, we'll talk about stuff, uh, and we'll talk about people, and then we'll go home. Uh, and that's not Christianity. Christianity is, is a daily lifestyle that we live. It's following and modeling our life after Jesus Christ, and that's what discipleship is. Discipleship really has two main com- components. First of all, being a committed follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if any man will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Jesus says, if you want to be a disciple, you want to be a committed follower of mine, you've got to deny yourself. It's not about you any longer. It's all about Jesus. It's about not only laying down my sin so that I can be saved from my sin, but it's laying down my own hopes, dreams, goals, aspirations, and everything that I want for me. I'm laying that down so that I can follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, you can't be my disciple unless you're willing to follow after me. There've been, uh, we have a discipleship program here at Huikala. We uh, usually four times a year uh, sit down and have major uh, kickoff events, I guess you could say, that we have of starting this 14-week discipleship program that we have here. Uh, if you're interested in discipleship, you don't have to wait until the next one rolls around in January. You can start anytime. Just fill out your connection card on the back uh, saying that you want to start discipleship. We'll partner you up with another person who will teach you the Bible. It's one of the best ways in the world for you to, to learn and grow in your faith. Uh, we normally do it on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. If you can't make it on Wednesday at 7 o'clock, we'll find another time that works for you. But the key is, is that every Christian should go through some form of discipleship. You need to know your faith and why you believe what you believe. And you sit down with another Christian and talk about what it means to be committed to Christ, what it means to walk with Jesus, what it means to uh, be willing to sacrifice your own life to follow Christ. And that's a, it's a heavy thing to, to talk about discipleship. And of the folks that start discipleship here at Huikala, I'd say we have probably a 50 to 60% completion rate. And you might look at that and you go, wow, that's terrible. Half the people don't even make it. First of all, many times people get into discipleship not knowing what it is and then recognize that the call to follow Jesus is not just a, I'm gonna show up to church as much as I can on Sunday mornings. It's that I'm gonna follow Jesus every single day for the rest of my life, 24 hours a day, seven days a week in every area of my life. It's a little bit of a shock. And sometimes people aren't ready to make that type of commitment. And so they walk away from discipleship. Some people flat out just don't care enough to be discipled or to grow in their faith or to be committed to the process. And so sometimes people will look at that and they go, wow, 50 to 60% of people never even finished. That's terrible. If you look at the number of people that finished with Jesus from the thousands that he started with, his attrition rate was much greater than 50%, I would say. And so uh, Jesus uh, started with thousands of people following him and, and finished with 11 guys that were mostly marginally kind of sort of committed to him. And so the, uh, the process of discipleship is, is not an easy road to walk. It's difficult. 
Being a disciple of Jesus is a difficult process. And there have been times where we have had to, I don't know if a better term to say, fire people from discipleship. Like you can't come back and you go, you would really do that? Yeah, because people show up and they're not interested in talking about the Bible. They're not interested in being a follower of Jesus. They're wantonly and openly rebellious against what the Bible says. And they have little to no interest in following Jesus. And so we've had to say to them, hey, you should take some time off of discipleship and reevaluate your life choices and your decisions that you're making. And then if you're truly ready to follow Christ, we want to help you to do that. And you say, well, that's terrible. You can't do that to people. I don't set the criteria for discipleship. Our church doesn't set the criteria for discipleship. Jesus does. He says, if any man will follow after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And if you're not willing to do that, Jesus says you can't be his disciple. So it's heavy. It's, big. it's a big deal. But I'm telling you this, being a disciple of Jesus Christ will bring you the most joy in life. It will bring you the most fulfillment in life. It'll bring you the most contentment in life. And you will see things that you've never seen before in a way that you've never seen them before if you're willing to commit to being a committed follower of Jesus Christ. It changes everything. I was talking with somebody this week about, uh, they said that they knew somebody who uh, claimed to be a Christian, but they weren't living like a Christian. And I said to them, being saved and being a committed follower of Jesus Christ are two different things. I said, unfortunately, it sounds like this person is saved, but they're not a committed follower of Christ. And that's hurtful to hear. Because in the Bible, it's an expectation that every Christian, everyone who calls the name of Christ would be a committed Christ follower. It's the expectation But if the Christian life is about discipleship, it's not just about being a committed follower of Christ, it's about helping others to be a committed follower of Christ. Helping other people on their journey, bringing other people along. And in our discipleship program, what we have is we have one person with another person, one person who's been saved maybe a little bit longer, someone who's gone through discipleship before, leading another person who has not gone through discipleship before. Sometimes we'll do married couples with married couples. But the idea is this is you're always bringing somebody along and when uh, that person completes discipleship, it's now their opportunity to take another person through discipleship as the leader this time. And some people have looked and they go, wow, that's a genius way to do things. Pastor, where'd you come up with that? (laughs) I didn't come up with it, the Bible did. It's a biblical plan for discipleship. You take what you've learned, you pass it on to somebody else. Most commonly, this is done in in homes. It should be done in homes where parents take the faith that they have and things that they've learned and pass them on to their children. But discipleship is not relegated only to our home. It's It's a thing that takes place throughout our entire church, throughout our community, helping other people become committed followers of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2, 2 is, is the, really kind of the driving verse, I guess you could say, for our discipleship program and things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, saying, commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So this process of discipleship is about taking your journey with Christ and passing it on to another person and helping them to be stronger and strengthened on their journey with Christ. That's discipleship and that's what the Christian life is all about. We've got a long introduction this morning because I want you to understand this. If you've accepted Christ as Savior, I'm thankful for that. I really am. If you're here today and you never accepted Christ as Savior, I'll tell you this, you need to know Jesus because he's the only hope that you have for this life and the next. Without Jesus Christ, you will die and spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell because of your sin. I deserve that, you deserve that. That's just the price of admission to this thing called life. But God sent his son to die in your place so that you don't have to go to hell. Jesus came and died for your sins 
that if you'd be willing to put your faith and trust in Jesus as your savior, you can be saved, all of your sin forgiven, wiped away, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you'd be willing today to put your faith and trust in Jesus as your savior, if you're here today and you're a child of God, that means that you're saved from the penalty of your sin. You're saved from God's wrath and punishment for your sin and you're saved to a new life. Unfortunately, many Christians stop there. And then we have somewhere along the line created a consumeristic mindset when it comes to Christianity, Jesus, the Bible, and the church. Hey, what can I get out of this? What's in it for me? How can I get all of the things that I want out of life from Jesus? What can Jesus bring to the table for me? If I am a committed follower of Christ, what's in it for me? What do I get? And unfortunately, we have many churches today who are willing to pander to that, to tell you that when you follow Jesus, all your problems go away. When you, go, when you follow Jesus, you'll start making more money. When you follow Jesus, your health will, uh, will restore itself. And we begin to, to create a pseudo-false Christianity that looks nothing like the Christianity of the Bible. The Bible says that if you follow after Christ, your life will be hard. It will be difficult. You will face troubles, trials, tribulations, persecutions maybe even for your faith. It will be difficult. And so those that come to the Bible with a consumeristic mindset said, well, if it's just gonna be hard, I don't wanna do it. We live in a society that wants to take the easy path to everything. Well, if Christianity is hard, why bother? If life's gonna be difficult, why bother? If I can't get anything out of it for myself, why bother? I've known folks, and maybe this has been you, and if it is, I'm thankful that you're here. They say, well, we're gonna start going to church as a family because my kids need it. And that's a good reason to start. It's a terrible reason to stay. You need it. I need it. Everybody needs it. And so it's a matter not from what can I get from Christianity, but this changes everything for you. I'm gonna tell you this. It's not what can I get from Christianity, but because I have been given so much, what can I give to God and worship? That changes everything. Angela and I were young Christians when we first got married and we didn't know nothing about nothing and we were going to a church uh, and we were attending sporadically. And there were some Sundays that I would go that I'd say, yeah, today's message didn't really apply to me. I didn't really care for it that much. And uh, on the way home, I would gripe and complain about the message and how it wasn't that great and how it was maybe even a little bit boring. Uh, on the way home, I would talk about the, the music and uh, the person that sang and how their voice wasn't that great and uh, her, or a song that was sung that I thought was really boring and, and terrible and all this other stuff. And it was, it was awful because I was going to church for what I could get from it and how it met my needs and what it did for me. And the problem was I was focused on me. I wasn't focused on God's glory. I wasn't focused on other people. I definitely wasn't focused on any portion of discipleship or learning to be a committed follower or helping other people in their journey. I just wanted something that did it for me. I just wasn't always finding it. But everything changed when I Angela and I made a decision to stop looking at Christianity as far as what we could get from it, but realizing we had been given the greatest gift ever in the form of Jesus Christ himself was given to me. What can I give back? 
And the answer was, what could I possibly not give, but what could I possibly withhold? Because I've been given everything, I want to give everything that I have back. And then began a journey of just trying to, one day at a time, make better decisions, trying to walk with Jesus. We had a couple who took us under their, their, their wing and discipled us and loved us and encouraged us and poured into our life and helped us to know what it meant to be a committed follower of Christ. And everything changed from that point forward. And I say all that to begin with this. What if your trial, what if your suffering, what if your difficulty really isn't for you or for your benefit, it's for the benefit of others? What if what you're going through, the main beneficiary of what's taking place is gonna be other people? What if... This trial has very little to do with you and has everything to do with the people around you. What if? That's what Paul says here in this passage here. You know, if we take a look at verse number 14, he says this. Mind you, Paul's writing from prison, verse number 13. So that in my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds. Because I'm in prison, because I'm locked up, other people's faith is being made bold. You see, first of all, Paul says in verse number 12, our suffering is an opportunity for the gospel to be heard. You see, if I can endure suffering with joy, if I can endure suffering with faith, if I can endure suffering believing that God is in charge and believing that he's able, then people will see that in my life. Hey, Anthony, I heard you're going through a tough spot. Is everything okay? Yeah, man, God's in charge of this. I'm just trusting him. Is everything all right with you? Yeah, I'm just, I'm just trusting in the faithfulness of God. He's brought me this far, and we didn't come this far just to stay this far. He's going to take me the rest of the way. He's faithful. How can you have such peace? I have such peace because I know that my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. Let me share that with you about what that means to me. And this gives you the opportunity to put your faith on display for other people, the opportunity for the gospel to be heard. Paul was locked up in prison under house arrest. And in this case here, he had many visitors. And you know what he said about his visitors? Verse number 12, but I would that you should understand, brethren, that these things which happened to me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. These things have happened so that the gospel can go forward. The word fallen out means to advance amidst difficulty and opposition. Hey, the gospel's gone forward because of what's taken place with me. You know what Paul's saying? Hey, guys, don't sweat me. I'm good. I'm okay. You don't have to worry about me because God's word is going forward in a way that it couldn't have previously because of my current circumstances and situations. You see, Paul during this time would have the opportunity to talk with prison guards about his faith. Paul would have opportunity to talk with Jewish people who had not yet come to faith in Christ yet as they visited him here. Paul had the opportunity to meet a young man who was a runaway slave, and his name was Onesimus. He came and met Paul in prison, and Paul led him to Christ while he was in prison. And Paul took the time to write a letter back to his slave owner, his master. His master's name was Philemon. He wrote him a letter and says, hey, I found your runaway slave. He's not a slave anymore, though he's a brother in Christ. 
And when he's coming back to you, and here's the crazy thing. We don't know if Onesimus, the runaway slave, was the guy that delivered the letter to Paul or not. Some theologians surmise that and believe that, but again, we don't know that to be the case. But he says, hey, when he comes back, don't receive him as a slave or a servant. Receive him as your brother. And here's what Paul said. And hey, if Onesimus owes you anything, put that on my account and I'll take care of it when I get there. We'll settle up when I get there. I'll make everything right. But he's no longer a slave. He's now your brother. The book of Philemon, such a short verse or such a short book towards the end of the New Testament. Such a powerful story of the gospel and restoration though. How did Paul have that opportunity? Because he's in prison. And he says, hey, the gospel's going forward. The work of God is going forward because of the situation that I'm in. Next, we see that our suffering's an opportunity to put Jesus on display. Your time of difficulty, your time of trial is a time to lean hard into your faith, not abandon it. It's your opportunity to say, hey, Jesus is important to us. But you know what I've seen happen oftentimes, and this is troubling, I see people when they come to times of difficulty, they lean in hard to their faith. They put Jesus on display. But then when the storm clouds roll away and the sunlight begins to break through the clouds for the first time in a really long time, they bail. They no longer need God anymore. He's provided what they needed and they'll move on without him. Troubling to see that. You see, you don't just need Jesus on your bad days, you need Jesus on your good days. You don't need Jesus just to clean up the mess that you're in, you need Jesus to walk with you day by day to make sure you don't make any more messes from here forward. You don't just need Jesus for what he can provide to you, you should want Jesus because what he's already provided to you. He's faithful. And your suffering is your opportunity to lift Jesus up in your life. To say, hey, and some of you, I've been here and so I'll help you with this. Some of you haven't been walking a faithful life up to this point. And you feel like to call out the name of Jesus in the middle of a trial would be fake or a put on. Like I haven't been living for Christ but now I'm gonna act like a super Christian now that I'm going through a difficult time. Let me help you with that because there was a period in my life where I was not walking with Jesus uh, where I had a, a very foul mouth. I was very ugly at work. I was a hard worker, but I talked trash about my coworkers because they were trash. I don't know how many of you have been there before? Uh, but um, I just wasn't living for Jesus the way that I should. Some of you, that resonated inside your soul, didn't it? Uh, doesn't make it right, doesn't make it right. But when I decided that I'm really gonna do this, I'm really gonna start following Jesus the real deal way, I had to go to several people that I work with and apologize hey, I'm a Christian, and I know I haven't been acting like it, and I want to let you know that I'm sorry. But I'm trying to make some changes in my life to make myself a better person. I'd like to ask for your forgiveness in that. I'm not going to be perfect from here on out, but I just want to let you know that I'm sorry. And let me tell you, that was a hard conversation to have because it requires us to walk in humility and swallow our pride. But it was some of the best decisions that I've ever made because that was a new starting point for me. So the fact that you want Jesus now doesn't make you a hypocrite or a fake or a phony. It just gives you the opportunity to have a new, fresh start again. Gives you the opportunity to start over, and that's what God does. He allows you the opportunity to start over. But this is your opportunity to put Christ on display. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse number 17, speaking of us, we're God's children, and if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, so that if we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. 
Here's what Paul says about our suffering. For I reckon that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Hey, the suffering that you're going through right now, it's nothing compared to the glory that you're going to see on the other side of this. God is faithful. He will see you through this. He will provide for you each and every step along the way if you put your focus on him because he wants to be magnified. And on the other side of your trial, you'll have the opportunity to say, Jesus was faithful all the way. And again, put him on display. Now, again, if you want the credit for all that you've done or you want a feather in your cap for making your way through this and things like that, maybe Christianity is not for you because Christianity shows you the worthlessness of your own attempts, the emptiness and the futility that's found in trying to do things your own way. But your suffering is the opportunity to put Jesus Christ on display like never before in your life. But friend, your suffering is an opportunity to make other people bold in their faith. Verse number 14, and many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident in my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You know what I've often found is that when I'm in a group of people that I don't know or don't know well, maybe even some that I've known for, for weeks, maybe months, and I come out, I guess you could say, as a Christian, you find that other Christians pop up all over the place. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was a Christian. I grew up in church my whole life. I went to a Christian school, graduated from a Christian college, stuff like that. But, oh, well, I didn't know that. Well, yeah, I've been out of church for a while. I haven't been walking with God the way that I should. And what you can find is that if there's one person willing to take a stand, usually other people are willing to take a stand with them. If you're willing to step out to the front and say, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm not ashamed of it. Hey, I don't do stuff like that because I'm a Christian. Hey, we shouldn't act that way. I'm a Christian and that, that doesn't jive with what my faith says. If we're willing to do that and step out to the front, the Bible says that allows other people to be bold in their faith now. That allows other people to say, hey, I'm a Christian too and I don't agree with that. Hey, I'm a Christian too and I, don't, I, don't, I, can't, I can't go with that. And you have the opportunity to be a trendsetter, I guess you could say, to be bold to allow your boldness to make other people bold. Paul says people are now speaking their faith without fear because I'm in prison. Now, you think that would be the opposite of it, right? Paul was bold in his faith, and what happened? He got locked up. He got arrested. He got put in prison. And you would think that that would cause other people to go, whoa, 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 dial it back a notch. Paul got put in prison for this. No, no, no. You know what he did? It emboldened people. Hey, if Paul can be faithful to Jesus in prison, I can be faithful to Jesus outside of prison. Hey, if Joe can be faithful going through losing his job and not knowing where his next paycheck's coming from, I can be faithful to God if everything's going my way. Hey, so-and-so that got a cancer diagnosis is bold in her faith. I have my health as far as I know. Maybe I can be bold in my faith too. And when we suffer well, we strengthen other people's faith around us. And again, if you're looking at this from a consumeristic mindset, you're like, I don't care if it helps other people or not. Want it to help me? No, 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 you're missing the point of Christianity then. Christianity is not about you. It's about the glory of God. It's about pointing other people to the glory of God. That's what it's all about. The fact that you and I get a ticket to heaven based on what Jesus has done, 
that's a highly beneficial side effect of what salvation does for us. But that's not the reason why we live. That's not the reason why we exist to just hope that we go to heaven one day. No, no, no. We exist to give glory to God and to bring other people along on that journey. God wants you to be an example of how to suffer well. As a Christian, you are always teaching. Always. The question is, what are you teaching? When I was a carnal Christian, and on the way home from church, and trashing our church, and talking bad about uh, the preaching, and talking bad about music, and stuff like that, you know what I was teaching? It's all about me. If I don't get what I want, I pitch a fit. Act like a two-year-old. And then I make it all about me. That's what I was teaching. But when we told our kids, hey, look, if there's something going on at church, our family will be there. If there's a church service, we're going to be attending because we're going to build our life around Jesus Christ and his church. You know what I taught my kids? That's what's important. When I taught my kids, hey, I know you got a basketball game on Wednesday night, but you can tell your coach that you won't be there because we have church. Hey, you got baseball games on Sunday, guess what? I guess we're not playing baseball anymore because Jesus comes first and the Lord's day is, is of, of utmost importance to our family. And while my kids sometimes did not agree with the decisions that we made as a family, there was n- no confusion as far as where we stood because that was teaching my children. Unfortunately, many times families expect to drop their kids off in super church and allow our super church ministry to teach them the Bible. And I'm thankful that we got a phenomenal kids program. But please understand, that's not all the Bible teaching your family needs. Many times people are content to come on a Sunday morning and hear a message and think, well, I got my Bible teaching for the week. No, 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 you need to be walking with Jesus in the word every single day. This is not a Sunday thing. This is an everyday thing. And when we suffer well, we teach people what suffering looks like. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of seeing another Christian face the end of their life with joy. It's a powerful thing to behold. It's a powerful thing to stand with someone who knows that they're facing death in the face and have no fear. When they say things like, don't cry, it's okay. Don't cry, I'm gonna see Jesus soon. Everything's gonna be fine. The power and the boldness that comes from watching people suffer well, it does something to your faith. It strengthens your faith. I had a friend several years ago that was facing uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer. He was undergoing chemotherapy and radiation treatment at the same time. He lost all of his hair, his uh, swollen, bloated. When I saw him, I didn't even recognize him. He's out of work for almost a year. And uh, in an effort to cheer him up, I thought, what better thing could you give a person who's facing something like this than the Lord's chicken? And so I went to Chick-fil-A for him, right? <laughs> Nothing fixes life problems like Chick-fil-A. Again, it is the Lord's chicken. So uh, it was, must be holy and blessed, I guess. The problem was is that there wasn't a Chick-fil-A close to us. The closest Chick-fil-A was an hour and a half away. So um, he was going through a period where he couldn't eat a lot and, and things like that. And I called him and I said, hey, how does Chick-fil-A sound? And he goes, oh, I'd kill to have 20 nuggets from Chick-fil-A. I said, done. So give me a few hours and I'll get it sorted out. So Angela and I drove three hours round trip to pick up chicken nuggets for the guy. I, I will have to say I probably got some for myself on that trip. So it wasn't uh, full disclosure. 
but I brought him back and I dropped him off at the house and, and, and he gave me a hug and, and he was crying and stuff like that. It was tough to see. And he called me back like 20 minutes later and he goes, Anthony, I got a problem. And I was just like, dude, what, what, what's going on? He goes, I don't know what to do and I, I could just really use some advice right now. I said, okay, man, what is it? And he goes, barbecue sauce or not? <laughs> I go, what? And he goes, like, these nuggets are so good by themselves, I don't know whether to eat them by themselves or with barbecue sauce. What should I do? And I was like, are you kidding? And he's busted up laughing on the other end of the phone. And he goes, I'm just kidding. Uh, and he hung up on me. And I thought to myself, <laughs> what was that? And I thought, the whole way home, I'm driving home, I'm thinking to myself, did he really just, like, this guy's facing death. He's a wife and three kids. And he's making jokes about barbecue sauce. And I thought to myself, here's somebody that's learned to suffer well. He realizes this life's short. If you can't make jokes about barbecue sauce, what can you make jokes about, right? But that taught me so much about suffering. He never wanted to be the center of attention, never wanted a pity party, never wanted anybody to make anything about him. He wanted to use his suffering as an opportunity to serve other people. See, God wants to put his grace on display alongside your own hurt. This is hard. Nobody ever wants to be a picture of God's grace through suffering, but that's precisely what God wants to do for you. If you know anything about the life of Paul, you know that the life of Paul wasn't incredibly glamorous. Wasn't exactly a, a lot of mountaintop experiences. The guy faced difficulty that most people will never know of. The guy faced suffering again and again and again. Truthfully, his standard of living was much better before he met Christ, much better. But he chose to follow Jesus and suffering came along with it and he embraced it. And he had the opportunity to show people what the grace of God looks like in the life of another person. And friend, do not let your suffering cause your faith to wane. Do not allow your suffering to cause you to retreat do not allow your difficulty to cause you to put God's grace in the back seat and maybe you'll need it later. No, 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 no. God wants your suffering to be on display so that his grace can be shown right alongside of it. Hey, here's my suffering. Here's how difficult life is. But here's God's grace. And if you put the two together, God's grace will eclipse your suffering so that all people see is the grace of God in your life. That's what, what God wants to do when you face difficulties and trials. Because you see, the hero of the Bible is never you and I. It's always Jesus. And the hero story of my life, I don't get to be the hero. Jesus is. I'm always the one in need of saving. I'm always the one in need of grace. I'm always the one in need of help. I'm always the one in need of power. And anything I try to accomplish in my own power will fail miserably. But if I stand in the power of Christ, that's where true power is found. My pastor, Pastor Paul Chapel, who will be here a week from tomorrow. I hope you'll plan on being here. It's a Monday night at 7 o'clock. I hope you'll be here. I know you'll be helped by it. But he wrote a book earlier this year called Outsiders. Uh, phenomenal book. If you haven't gotten a copy of it yet, we have probably, I'd say, 20 or so copies uh, on the back table today. Uh, grab one of those before you leave. Here's what I'm willing to do because this book, this book literally 
changed my outlook on the Christian life and really the rest of my life and what I want to accomplish. And so I'll tell you this, we bought the books um, at cost, but I'm willing to give you them to you today for below cost if you'll take the book and read it because I believe it'll have that much of an impact on you. Uh, we have books back there. Cost is, is for you today is $5. Uh, and we'll do that until we run out of books. But here's the thing. I, I read this book. It's the story of 15 men outside of the Bible who throughout church history changed the world. The world. All 15 of these men endured deep, deep suffering. But you and I are beneficiaries of it today because of their suffering. One man by the name of John Wycliffe was one of the first people to try to translate the Bible into English. He didn't have a a good manuscript to start from. He started with the Latin Vulgate and began to translate that from the Latin Vulgate into English. And what he did was considered a crime. He was considered a heretic for what he had done. And because of that, he uh, was tried three separate times by the Catholic Church but they couldn't find anything to actually charge him with and he began to translate the Bible from the Latin Vulgate into English. Rough translation, no doubt. But it was the first time people would ever actually read the word of God in English. Unfortunately, before, or fortunately, before the Catholic Church had the opportunity to execute him, John Wycliffe died of a stroke and was buried that did not stop the Catholic Church because 40 years later, they dug up his body for the purpose of burning what was left of his bones and then tossed him in the river, just a way to desecrate his memory. What was his crime? Why was he a heretic? Because he wanted everybody to be able to read the Bible. And you and I owe a debt to John Wycliffe today because he was the first person who said every person should read the Bible in their own language and began a translation work John Fox, who wrote the book Fox's Book of Martyrs, said that though they dug up his body, burn his bones, and drown his ashes, yet the word of God and the truth of his doctrine with the fruit of success thereof, they could not burn, which is yet to this day and doth remain. Another man took over where Wycliffe had, had left off, a man by the name of William Tyndale. William Tyndale had preached some in his earlier days, but was really an English scholar. And William Tyndale took over where he had left off and even began to find other Greek manuscripts by a man by the name of Erasmus and begins to translate now, not from Latin, but from the original Greek and Hebrew texts that the uh, Bible was written in and began to do a translation work. And William Tyndale made it his life's work to translate the Bible, the whole Bible, into English. Now, this is important because this was a feat that would be punishable by death. During that same time period in the uh, year 1517, I'm sorry, 1519, seven Christian parents were burned at the stake. You know what their crime was? Teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. For that, they were put to death by it. Who were they put to death by? The Catholic Church. Because the Catholic Church was vehemently against anyone reading the Bible in their own language. If you need to know what the Bible says, you should ask a priest and he'll tell you. But William Tyndale knew that people couldn't be committed to a faith that they didn't understand. And so we wanted people to be able to read the Bible in their own language. William Tyndale is quoted as saying, I defy the Pope and all of his laws, and if God spares me his life ere many years, I'll cause the boy that driveth the plow to know more of the scriptures than thou dost. So his goal was that people would have the Bible in their own language, and William Tyndale in 1526 completed his first pass of the English New Testament 
began to unload the uh, uh, New Testaments at the uh, harbor in London, England. And the uh, New Testament spread like wildfire. Now, mind you, at this time, the uh, printing press was fairly new and the, the copies had to be tediously copied. But he began to get these, the uh, New Testaments out throughout England. Go back to the last slide, if you would. This is a picture of a St. Paul's cross right outside St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, the Bishop of London at that time had put out a decree in October of that same year, 1526. By October of that year, he put out a decree that all of the New Testaments in English, English in England should be rounded up and brought to St. Paul's Cross and be burned. And so that place, Angela had the opportunity to visit there this past summer. Phenomenal story. They gathered together all of the New Testaments in English, England and burned them because nobody should have them. It was a crime to have that. William Tyndale was then forced to retreat to Germany to hide out because he wanted to finish the work that he had started on the New Testament. He finished the New Testament, he finished the Old Testament, and began to go back and revise it. And before he had finished his first revision of it, again, really a rough work that he had there, he was put on trial, he was ar caught, arrested, and executed. October 6, 1536, William Tyndale was taken to the stake where he was strangled before being burnt. Just before he was executed, he cried out, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. His translation was so strong and precise that 90% of the New Testament and 75% of the Old Testament is word for word verbatim his translations. William Tyndale. William Tyndale created such English words that weren't yet in our vernacular, such as the word Jehovah, was the first person to ever create the word in English, Jehovah, which is the name that we use for God. Words like the Passover, uh, he used to, to translate from the word Paschal, uh, which speaks of the Passover lamb. And it was the first one to create the word Passover. The word showbread was a word that he had come up with. Other types of phrases that we use, the apple of one's eye, uh, things along those lines. Am I my brother's keeper? These were all phrases that William Tyndale himself had come up with to try to communicate the, the Greek and Hebrew meaning into an English language. One scholar said that we owe more of the English language to William Tyndale than we do William Shakespeare. And this is a man who knew what was coming for him, but he chose to give his life for something because he wanted God's word to go forward. And I say that to say this. As I read the story of these 15 men throughout, who throughout history faced difficulty, persecution, affliction, many of them death, I thought to myself, have I done enough for Christ with my life? If these men were willing to die for what they had done and were beneficiaries 500 years later of William Tyndale's life, have I done enough for Christ? And I began to do a lot of self-discovery in my own life and I thought, I wanna do more. I wanna be more committed to the cause of Christ. I wanna cause the word of God to go forward, further. I want our church to be deeper in love with God more committed to the gospel. I want us to be a people who can change the world by our commitment to God and our faith. And these two men, 500, 600 years ago, stood for something that emboldened my faith and strengthened my faith. Final thoughts I wanna leave you with here this morning. First of all, our circumstances cannot steal our joy. Just because you are walking through a difficult time, just because you are walking through what might feel like the most painful time in your life, it doesn't have to steal your joy. Paul, through this 
letter that he would write to the church at Philippi would tell them, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Find a reason to praise God. Your circumstances cannot steal your joy. I've known people, again, who were facing death, facing divorce, facing financial ruin, who had joy like no one else because joy is not dependent upon your circumstances. It's dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Next, our circumstances don't limit what we can do for Christ. They only create new opportunities. Your suffering will give you the opportunity to put God's grace on display like never before. It's gonna introduce you to people who need to know Jesus. There were times where our kids were walking through difficult medical diagnosis. We were able to share our faith with a nurse, share our faith with a doctor, be able to talk about the grace of God and the peace of God with people who didn't know Jesus. And it just gave us a different set of opportunities to be able to share our faith. It gives you a different platform now that you have to be able to tell other people about Jesus. And your suffering is not meant to hurt you. It's meant to strengthen you and to strengthen others. You see, our story of suffering is a story of the faithfulness of God. As a pastor, I'm able to walk with people in the best days of their life and the worst days of their life. But my answer on both days is the same. God's faithful. Hey, pastor, just want to let you know I got, got picked up for promotion at work. Praise God. He's faithful. Hey, pastor, just want to let you know I lost my job and I don't know what I'm going to do. Keep praising God. He's faithful. Hey, pastor, just want to let you know I went back to my doctor scan, 100% clear of cancer. Praise God. He's faithful. Hey, pastor, just want to let you know that my cancer spread and I'm not sure how much longer I have to live. We know that God's faithful, though. And your story of suffering is the story of the faithfulness of God. Do not, under any circumstances whatsoever, ever quit on God, ever. He's promised to never quit on you. He's been faithful. Final thought, our suffering is the price for making other people bold. I want my life at the end of my life to have counted for something. I remember many years ago, Angela and I just got married and I just got out of the Navy and we started our own computer training consulting company here in town and we're doing well financially as much as a you know 26-year-old kid can. And I remember the thought as I was reading through my Bible of standing before God one day and having to give an account of my life. And I just remember thinking to myself, I don't want to stand before God one day and say that I wasted my life. I don't want to stand before God one day and say, I made a lot of money, I did a lot of fun stuff, and it, it was good. Thanks for the opportunity, God. I wanted my life to count. I wanted it to matter for something. And the thought gripped me at that moment that if I stood before God, I would stand before God embarrassed that I had done so little with my life. So I made a commitment from that point forward that I wanted to live for the day that I get to see Jesus. I haven't lived perfect since then, but I've been progressing, growing. Bible word for that, sanctification, discipleship. But I want my life to count. I want it to matter. When I'm gone, I don't want to just have had an impact on a couple of people. 
I want to have a massive impact, not because I want my name to be great, because I want God's name to be great. Hey, look, I don't have any misgivings that one of these days somebody's going to include me in a book of the great men of the faith. It's not going to happen. And I'm not concerned about that. I don't want the applause of men. I want to stand before God one day and he say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's all I want to hear. But I can't do that if I'm just focused on me. And our first instinct, our knee-jerk reaction when we go through trials is like, really, God? Like me? After all I've done? I mean, why not this guy? He only believe in you. Why me? And then we begin this terrible cycle where it becomes all about us. God's mad at me, and God hates me, and God doesn't love me, and why did he do this to me? When I get to heaven, I've got a lot of questions for God. But friend, understand, you're suffering. You're only one part of the pie. God's glory is the massive. God's glory is the pie. And you're just a small sliver of it. Teaching other people how to suffer well, it's a bigger piece of the pie. Discipleship, it's a bigger piece of the pie. Putting God's grace and glory on display, it's a huge piece of the pie. You and your situation, small piece. Not to say that it doesn't matter or that you don't matter. You matter infinitely to God. God says that he knows every single hair on your head and how many there are. He's greatly concerned about you. But know this, you're suffering for you, just a small sliver of it. So we need to start asking ourselves when we go through trials, God, how can I make you look good through this? God, how can I display your glory through this? God, who is somebody that you want me to share my story with so that you can get glory through this? God, who's somebody that I can make bold through this? God, what can I teach my kids through this? Because I want your name to be made great. Every time we've faced suffering as a family, it's been a teaching opportunity. There's been times where I had to sit down with my kids and say, hey, look, God's in charge of all this and he'll figure it out in his time. We're gonna trust him through this. He's faithful through this. It's a teaching opportunity that I have. Hey, look, I wish there was an easier way to teach. I wish we could just tell our kids that God's good and they just believe it. But when we get to show our kids the goodness and grace of God, it has a longer lasting impact. There was a kid, my dad, self-employed to this day, there were periods of time in our life where we'd have quite a bit of money and there were times where we had little to no money. But in the periods of time where I knew that the bills were piling up on my dad's desk of the invoices that needed to be paid, I always saw him go to church. He always sang. And every time they passed the offering basket, he pulled the envelope out of his pocket and he put it in the offering basket every single week, 52 weeks a year from 18 years I saw it. And you know what? He didn't gather our family together for family devotions and we didn't hold hands and pray and stuff like that. But watching my dad's faithfulness through good times and bad times taught me just about everything I needed to know about the faithfulness of God. He taught me. He didn't know he was teaching me, but he taught me 
Had I seen my parents quit on God, give up on God, talk about how unfaithful God was, or be faithful to God when he was faithful to them, sporadic in their commitment to Christ, it would have taught me a lot differently things about God, about life. We're always teaching. You're teaching the people that you work with, hey, I'm faithful to God as long as he's good to me. Second, he's not, I'm not faithful anymore. You know, you have the opportunity to put God's grace on display. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you do not know for sure that you're saved, you're not 100% sure that heaven is your home, please do not leave here today without knowing for sure that you are a child of God. If you're not saved, please hear this. Your suffering on this earth will be bad, but you're gonna go from bad to worse because the eternal suffering of hell never ends. But God sent his son Jesus to pay for your sins so that you don't have to go to hell so that you can be saved and never be under the punishment and wrath of God. For those of us that are children of God, if you're walking through a trial, put Jesus on display this week. Pastor, I'm not going through a trial. Good. I hope you took good notes because one's coming your way. It's just how life is. And when trials come your way, dig out your notes and go, oh yeah, this is my time to teach other people about how to suffer well. This is my opportunity to put Jesus on display. This is my opportunity to make God look really good through this. If we lift up Christ, God gets all the glory. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.